Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Today's scripture reading will come from Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 through 44. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers that were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will save him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Good morning. Grateful to be here with you all. Looking forward to the week together. Good to be with Glenn and Cindy. Appreciate them very much. And all of you who have come out to worship our Lord with us this morning in spirit and in truth. John and Simeon Reno, known as the Reno Brothers. They made American history because they were the first individuals in the history of our country to pull off a train robbery. Now, train robberies had happened before, but they had normally taken place when individuals were still in the station. But these two brothers caught on to something as they realized there were no armed guards on the train. And so, on October 6, 1866, they made off with $13,000 as they caught an Ohio and Mississippi train in Jackson County, Indiana, and made off with that money in the robbery. This was later picked up and mimicked by other individuals like Bush Cassidy's Wild Bunch and others. And then the train companies and the freight yards wised up and had armed guards on the trains to protect the precious metal and the cash that was being transported. But for all that we could say about the Reno brothers, they're not the most famous thieves in the history of the world. I wouldn't give them that title or that category, nor would I give it to individuals like maybe Jesse James or William Payne or even Frank Abagnale. No, the most famous thief that has ever existed is a man we don't even know his name. We don't even know where he's from or what he stole, but the most famous thief in all of the world is found in the most famous an influential book in all of the world, known affectionately to Bible students as the thief on the cross. He's mentioned in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all make mention of this individual, whether directly or indirectly. We're told not only that Jesus was crucified, but Matthew 27 and verse 38, and also John 19 and verse 18 says that there are two individuals on either side of Jesus, one on his right hand and one on his left. 
And as Jesus is being crucified, he's being mocked and ridiculed by the masses there, the chief priests and the crowd passing by underneath. And Mark tells us in Mark 15, 27 through 33, that the thieves, at least for a moment, also joined in in the heckling and in the rebuking and in the ridicule of Jesus. But mid-execution, one of the thieves has a change of heart. Luke tells us about it. He's the only one. Luke's the only gospel writer that tells us about the man that we've come to know as the thief on the cross or the penitent thief. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, 39 through 43, Luke tells us about this man who had this change of heart, who changed his mind for reasons at least in the initially unknown to us, but I hope we'll see some of it as we go through the lesson. This man who changed his mind as the other thief continued to rebuke Jesus. Luke tells us in verse 39, one of the thieves, which was crucified with him, railed at him and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God, seeing we're in the same condemnation and we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong or nothing amiss. Then he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here is the scene of this individual who has this change of heart. And Luke tells us about it. What did he believe? Now, before we get into our lesson, I just want to make mention of two errors that normally happen as individuals approach this text in Luke 23 that hopefully we can guard ourselves against this morning as we study it. And also throughout the remainder of our lives as we study this text, error number one is to use the occasion of the thief on the cross as a get-out-of-duty card with God Almighty. Individuals approach this text, and they say, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. In fact, my daughter, she's nine years old. She was at school the other day in a Bible discussion with someone, and this very thing came up, and this person said, well, your church believes that you have to be baptized to be saved, but what about the thief on the cross? And people will dismiss everything that the New Testament says about baptism, like Galatians 3, 26 and 27, or Acts 22, 16, or Romans 6, 3, and 5, and they'll say, 3 through 5, and they'll say, you know what? Because this man was assured of eternity with God just right before he died. Ultimately, baptism doesn't matter. More than that, nothing matters. So long as moments before you exit this life or at any time before that, you profess some sort of faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ, all will be well. But this man, in his very life, in his own words, argues strongly against that. The New Testament argues against it without works. Our faith is dead. It's empty. We're justified by works and not by our faith alone. To use this man as a reason to disobey God argues against everything the text teaches. But here's error number two. To only view the occasion of the thief on the cross as something that needs to be defended. See, the people in this camp, they mean well. And in their efforts to stand up for what the New Testament says about baptism and our need to obey God, they run right past everything that the thief actually teaches. And the only time they mention him is when they're in these sort of discussions with people on the other side of the aisle that say, you don't have to obey the gospel. You don't have to be baptized. And they only view the thief from the negative viewpoint of all that he doesn't teach us. And while that's important and that must be done, I believe Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has this occasion here to teach us something far more wonderful and in addition to all those things, Luke has a reason. Why is he here? Why does he tell us what he does? Rather than reading into the text and speaking on this man's behalf, let us just let the thief speak for himself. 
This morning, I want to walk you through five things that the man believed, the thief on the cross believed. And all of our points will come from the very mouth of the man who was crucified with Jesus on this occasion. Let's just let him speak for himself and see what he teaches us, because what we will find is everything that he believed. We need to believe as well if we be pleasing to God. Number one, the thief on the cross believed that God should be feared. The thief on the cross believed that God should be feared. Look at verse 39. This other thief is continuing to join in in the railing and the rebuking against Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us like the devil in the temptation in the wilderness, like the Pharisees and the chief priests throughout Jesus's life. They asked for one more sign. Prove to us that you are who you claim to be. This man is in that same camp. You remember Jesus would say in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, you can observe the signs and the seasons, but you can't see the Son of God right in your midst. You ignore the signs of the Son of Man. This thief, the non-penitent thief, is in the same category. He rails on Jesus. But verse 40 says, the other thief rebuked him and said, do you not fear God? This is a rhetorical question. He wasn't posing this question in order to get a response. His point was, you should fear God. In step with Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, where Solomon, at the end of his experiment on searching for wisdom and meaning of life, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all or the whole duty of man. God will bring every work into the judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. The thief knew this. He had done wrong. He is suffering for the wrong that he's done. He had stolen from people and taken things that he shouldn't have, but he knew this. There was a line you don't cross. There's one that deserves our respect and our reverence. And he says, maybe speaking right across Jesus, if you can envision it. And he says to the other thief, aren't you afraid of God? You see, he believed that God was observing. This wasn't merely an earthly execution, but that God was seeing the things that were taking place. And it mattered. The things that he was saying, this other thief, as he spoke out into the air and rebuked Jesus, this penitent man believed that God heard those things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15 and verse three. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. Second Chronicles 16 and verse nine. Job 34 and verse 21 says his eyes are over all of man's doings and of all the things he had gotten wrong in his life up to this point, he believed that God needed to be feared. You know, people have made mention of the fact that over 300 times in the Bible, somebody's counted 365 times, one for every day. The Bible says, do not be afraid. And that's true. God is often encouraging his people and trying to reassure us that there is nothing to fear. But at the very same time, the Bible also emphasizes this one grand truth. God is to be feared. And sometimes we attempt to soften this and mean we mean well and we say, well, God needs to be reverenced. And that's true. But, you know, the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament goes a step further than that. There also needs to be a sense of a sort of quaking fear of who God is. Just read through the Bible and find out that every time people encounter God, they don't run up to him to give him a hug. There's a sort of reverent fear of not only who he is, but what he can do. It was this fear. In Exodus 1 and verse 17, that kept the Hebrew midwives from exterminating the Hebrew boys. The Bible says they fear God more than they feared the word of the king. It was this fear that the holiness code in Leviticus called for in Leviticus 19 and verse 14, where God said, you don't mimic and you don't make fun of the handicapped and of those that are suffering in society. You're to fear because I am the Lord your God. 
It was this fear that held Job up as a person of stalwart integrity and holiness. In Job 1 and verse 1, when it says, Job feared God and he refrained from evil. The thief on the cross believed that God should be feared. Now, maybe in our time, we become too sophisticated for the fear of God. We don't have much time for fear of God. You know, people say, well, God's not going to hurt us. God won't do anything bad. God wants you to be just happy and satisfied. And God won't punish like in the days of Zephaniah. They said he won't do good or evil. Zephaniah 1 and verse 12. But, you know, people are mistaken about that. I go running and sometimes I run in neighborhoods and usually without fail. When I go running, somebody's dog is attempting to jump over the gate or dragging them on the leash. And in a moment, in a moment's notice, they often reassure me, the owners of these dogs, the dog is normally five times bigger than the person that has the dog on the leash. And they'll assure you, he won't bite, he won't do any harm. And in that moment, my mind is often thinking, well, why does he have those teeth? (laughs) You see, God's threats aren't empty. Oh, he won't do any harm. The thief on the cross says, don't you fear God. The day of the Lord will come, 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. God does not give empty threats, and the thief believed that God should be feared, and so should we. If we find ourselves doing things in secret that we think nobody knows about and God won't do anything, we should be asking ourselves this question. Don't you fear God? Matthew 10, 28. He can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't you fear God? If we find ourselves tempting God like the Israelites did in the wilderness, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10, They were destroyed. We should be saying to ourselves, don't you fear God? If we want to steal even a smidgen, a small percentage of the glory that belongs only to him so that people might think more of us than they should, we should look back to Herod in Acts chapter 12 and see that he became worm's food in a moment. And we should say to ourselves, don't you fear God? The first thing that the thief on the cross believed that we need to adopt ourselves is a healthy and a regular fear of God Almighty because of who he is. Now, here's number two. The thief not only believed that God should be feared, but the second thing is he believed that his punishment was deserved. Don't you fear God seeing we are in the same condemnation, but then he makes a contrast. And we indeed justly because we receive the due rewards for our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. The second thing the thief on the cross believed is that his punishment was deserved. He's being crucified. Exodus 20 in verse 15, the law taught you shall not steal. And he had done that. And the word that is translated to describe him in other places says that he was more than just a thief. He was a dangerous man. And he believed that he and the other thief were getting from the Roman officials exactly what they deserved. He says, we receive the due rewards for our deeds. He believed that his punishment was deserved and it was right for him to be dealt with in this way. He's a unique man. Very unique. The statement he makes puts him in unique company. Very few people in the world can suffer for the the consequences for their actions and own up to it without any parenthetical statement or excuse to say, you know what, I've done the wrong. I'm the guilty person. I'm the vile offender. But the thief on the cross, for all that he did wrong to get him in this situation, he knows his punishment is rightly deserved. He's in the class with Ezra. Ezra chapter 9, you remember the people come back from Babylonian captivity. And then in Ezra chapter 9, Ezra's offering up this prayer to God on behalf of the people because they begin to engage in these marriages to these foreign wives. And Ezra says in Ezra 9, 5 through 7, we have done wrong, God. We deserve shameness of face because we have transgressed. You have not rewarded us according to our sins, but we're wrong. We've done wrong. 
It's what Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter nine, five through eight. He says, we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed transgressions. You know, many people are in love with Psalm 51 and all that David teaches us about penitence. But very few people are willing to acknowledge their sin with the frankness and openness, which was David's. When he was confronted by Nathan in second Samuel 12 and verse 13, you know what he says when Nathan says you're the sinner I'm talking about? He doesn't say, well, you know, Bathsheba was immodest. And Uriah wasn't the kind of man that he should have been. And my my wife, McCall, Saul's daughter, she didn't have respect for things divine. David says, I have sinned. Period. Psalm 51 and verse three, I acknowledge my transgression. No doubt about it. Bathsheba had her part. But David says, when I confess to God, I'm doing it for me. It's not really about what the other party has done. I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me because in the end, that's the only sin that God's going to hold me accountable for. The thief on the cross believed that his punishment was deserved and he was willing and able to acknowledge such. He confessed that he was guilty, that he was deserving. Samuel Little is serving consecutive life sentences for murders that he committed in the 1980s. Recently, he was on 60 Minutes, and he was being interviewed by a Texas Ranger about the crimes that he's committed. He confessed to 93 of the killings. Now, authorities proceed with caution because serial killers often want notoriety and attention, but with little so far, 50 of the confessions have checked out. They're perplexed. They're confused as to what prompted his confession. Why would he come clean about all of this all of a sudden? They don't know. But here's what we do know. This man in Luke 23 has nothing to gain from his admission and his confession. He merely wants to acknowledge what's true and what's right. And the truth is he had done wrong. Would you hold your hand in Luke 23 and go to Proverbs 28? Proverbs 28 and verse 13. And notice what Solomon says about the nature of biblical confession and what it takes to ultimately be forgiven by God. Proverbs 28, 13, Solomon says, he that conceals his sin, he that covers his sin will not prosper. But he that confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. You've got to do both of those things. First John one and verse nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This man believed he was suffering and he deserved it. How many people in the world can say this? How many people are this open and this honest about their own shortcomings? It's not the area I grew up in. It's not my environment. It's not the government's fault. It's not my neighbor's fault, my parents, my spouse. It's me. I'm the sinner. I'm the one that's done the wrong. The thief on the cross is an example. He says, when you mess up, don't make excuses. Don't look for loopholes. Look for a mirror and say, you know what? I've done the wrong thing. He tells the other thief, we should probably own up. We've sinned. We've transgressed. And we receive the due rewards for our deeds, not the Romans. It's not the crooked Roman government. He says it's our fault. We deserve every ounce of what we're getting. Romans 13, 4, the government officials don't bear the sword in vain. And as it's being executed on this man, he says, I'm guilty. It's bigger than physical punishment. Do you know what we deserve? Because we transgress God's law. The Bible says the wages, the payment for sin, what we've earned is death. Romans 6, 23. Lust conceives and it brings forth sin and sin eventually brings forth death. James 1 and verse 15. Do we know what we deserve from God Almighty because of the things that we've done? And are we willing and able to say we deserve it? We're guilty. The thief on the cross believed that his punishment for his own sins was deserved. Now, here's the third thing. 
He says, we receive the due reward for our punishment. But the third thing the thief on the cross believed is Jesus what Jesus was an innocent man. He says, this man, the old King James has has done nothing amiss. The newer translations say he has done nothing wrong. He acknowledged that not only was he guilty, but the third thing that he believed is that Jesus was innocent of all of the crimes. He's not the first nor the only one in this sort of trial account to acknowledge the innocence of Jesus. It's what Judas said. After Judas betrayed Jesus in Matthew 27, 4, Judas says, I betrayed innocent blood. In Luke 23, in verse 4, Pilate says, I found no fault in him. He sends him to Herod. And then in Luke 23 and verse 15, Herod sends him back and he says, you know what? I wanted to see a sign, but I can tell you this. This man's done nothing wrong. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with that just man. Matthew 27, 19. Even the centurion at the foot of the cross in Luke 23, 47 says, truly, this is a righteous man. And then all of the soldiers ring out in chorus in Matthew 27, 54. And they say, this man was the son of God. He did nothing wrong. And the thief believed so. Not only did he believe it, but he voiced it. This man is in this position with us. But there should only be two crosses here. He has done nothing wrong. But it goes beyond that. Jesus had done nothing wrong to deserve the cross on that day, but he'd never done anything wrong in his entire life. Which one of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46. The answer is nobody. I've shown you many good works. For which of them do you stone me? John 10, 32. Jesus never committed a sin ever in his life. He's the only person in the history of the world that that could be said about. He had done nothing wrong and the thief believed it. What prompted him to see Jesus is different with everything that's going on around him in this moment. All of the accusations. How did he come to this conclusion? Maybe he saw the way that Jesus talked about his enemies. How he committed his mother to the care of John, whatever it was, it rang a bell with him. And he said, this man is innocent of the charges. This is a biblical theme. This is a major point of the Gospels, not just that Jesus died, but the way he had to die to fulfill prophecy. He had to die innocently. Isaiah 53 says he did no wrong. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah 53 and verse nine. He had to die this way. And the thief acknowledges it. Well, what does that mean for you and me? If Jesus is on the cross and he did nothing wrong, we should be asking ourselves an important question. Why is he there? Because you deserve it. It's because I deserve it. See, this is the harsh reality that we need to square up with and face from the biblical text. Jesus died for our transgressions, not for his own. The Bible says he was delivered up for our offenses and for our transgressions. It pleased God to bruise him for us. We like sheep have gone astray. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53 and verse 4. And Isaiah 53 and verse 6, it's for our transgressions that he died and not for his own. He was innocent. Throughout his entire life, he never committed a sin. And the thief on the cross believed Jesus was innocent of every sin. The innocent death of Jesus Christ is supposed to do something inside of us. It's supposed to do something to us. You remember when Solomon in first Kings chapter three is confronted by the two women who both claim that the the living child out of the two children, one had died, the, the living child was there. And Solomon said, well, we can fix this. 
We'll just cut the baby up in half and then we'll give both of you one. And Solomon did that for this reason, because Solomon believed that innocent death. I know we've graduated from this to our own peril in our country. It doesn't affect us like it should. But Solomon believed that the death of the innocent would do something in those women that the truth would eventually come out. He said, I could work on them psychologically this way. People are wired to such a degree that if they see an innocent person suffering, they just won't stand by and let it happen. The innocent death of Jesus Christ, God has wired us in such a way that something's supposed to transpire in us. When we surround the Lord's table, we're supposed to say not only did Jesus die, but he died for absolutely no reason other than his love for you and for me. And it's supposed to work on our hearts. What this man confessed, what he knew, is that Jesus had never committed a sin or done anything wrong. That he was dying vicariously for us in our stead and on our behalf. Now, here's number four. The thief on the cross believed that it was important to be remembered by Jesus. Would you look at the text? He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We don't know his name. We don't know where he's from. Were his parents there to watch him die? For all we knew. This is his last hurrah. This is it for him. That morning when he woke up, he knew that he was going to die for things that he had done. And he was going to fade off into the the vain emptiness of nothingness for history for all time. Nobody would ever remember him. But then he died next to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Don't forget about me. He knew that it was important to be remembered by Jesus, that he wanted God to remember him. In Genesis 8 and verse 1, the Bible says that God remembered Noah in the ark. God remembered the things that Noah had done, and he preserved him. Joseph reveals the cupbearer's dream in Genesis chapter 40, but then at the end of the chapter it says in Genesis 40 and verse 23, but the cupbearer forgot him. This man knew it was important to be remembered by Jesus, and he pleaded for Jesus to do so. You know, there are famous people in the world. They can't go to an airport or into a mall or anywhere without people just rushing them. People wanting autographs and pictures with them. And they're well known. Nothing wrong with that, but many of them are not known by God. And as known and as liked and as famous as they are in this world, at the judgment they'll hear these words. Depart from me, you which practice lawlessness, because I never knew you. If you have to choose between being well-known by men and unknown by God, always choose it in the reverse. The thief on the cross believed it's important to be remembered by Jesus. Now, here's where it gets important, because if we're going to be remembered by Jesus, then we've got to submit to Jesus and do his will. Jesus will remember in the affirmative those that submit to him and do his will. He's the author of eternal salvation to those that obey him. Hebrews 5 and verse 9. What does he mean, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He has to mean more than just remember that I exist. He doesn't want to be remembered as a thief. He wants to be remembered as an individual who turned, who was penitent, who had had a change of heart. He says, Jesus, remember me. The thief says people can change. And when they change, God will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 8 and verse 12. But he'll remember them as righteous and upright people. And that's exactly what the thief wanted. It's the change that Paul had. It's the change of the Thessalonians and countless people throughout the book of Acts who changed the course of their lives and who in turn was saying, God, forget all of the things I did in my former way of life, but I want you to remember me as I now stand before God Almighty. Nobody 
has a better memory than God. And don't you want to be remembered by him? If you want to be remembered by God, you have to remember him now. You have to submit to him now. Do his will now. Obey the gospel now while you have the opportunity. If you've obeyed it, be a faithful Christian and press toward the goal. Because what you need more than anything else in the world, what your heart needs and my heart needs more than anything else, is on the day of judgment, we need to hear Jesus say, I know him. And what God said about Jesus at his baptism, you need to hear these words, and I do. More than we need to hear anything else, we need to hear him say, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. They're with me. I remember you. You don't want to be forgotten. The thief didn't want to be forgotten. You know, so many people probably had forgotten what he stole, what he had done, his family legacy. But here's what we know. He wanted to be remembered by Jesus, and this is the person that is often honored by God. You know the irony that's lost on many people as they read Luke 23? They're rebuking Jesus and they're cursing him and they're saying, save yourself or others and we'll believe. He says, the son of man has come to seek and save the lost and he was saving up until the very last moment of his life. He saved one more time and they still didn't believe. Many people had watched Jesus live and raise the dead and they didn't believe he was who he claimed to be. The thief watches him die and he's convinced he doesn't need another sermon, another sign. He says, you're the Messiah and I want you to remember me. It's the grand reversal that runs the thread throughout Luke's gospel. It's the unsung hero that you wouldn't expect throughout Luke's gospel. The people that you don't think will believe and be penitent often are. It's the woman at Simon's house in Luke 7, 44 to 48 who falls at his feet, and Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? It's the tax collector in Luke 18 who goes up to pray and won't even look up to heaven, and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's Zacchaeus in Luke 19 who says, Lord, I restore everything I've stolen and give back fourfold, Luke 19, 8 through 10. And it's this thief who says, I desperately need to be remembered by Jesus. Now, here's the fifth and final thing that the thief on the cross believed. He believed that Jesus was a king and that he had a kingdom. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is probably here more than anywhere else that Jesus is disregarded and disrespected in today's climate and culture, even religiously. He believed that Jesus was a king and had a kingdom. Now, that's startling because as the events are transpiring, Jesus looks like anything but royalty here. He's stripped just like this man. He's beaten. But he believed Jesus was a king and that he had a kingdom. What tipped him off? Maybe he had heard John preaching, Matthew 3 and verse 2, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe he had heard Jesus preaching in his early Galilean ministry, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is near, Mark 1.15. Maybe he had encountered one of the disciples on the limited commission in Matthew 10, 6 and 7, when they said repent and believe the gospel. Or maybe it's the obvious. Maybe it's the sign right above Jesus's head that says Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. And he can say, you know what? That sign was meant for mockery, but it's actually true. He's the Messiah of God. Whatever it was, he knew Jesus was a king and that he had a kingdom and he believed it. Now, I don't believe he knew everything about the kingdom of God. The New Testament says that the kingdom of God is the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. And this man believed that. You study the Bible with people and you teach them what the New Testament says, and then they sometimes come to an assembly like this. And if you're a member of the New Testament church, a member of the church of Christ, we typically 
meet in relatively small buildings. We do things that most of the world would view as insignificant from week to week. And people are overwhelmed when they come into our company. They're often underwhelmed. They say, well, is this it? What do you mean the kingdom of God? Is this the kingdom of God? But it is. Jesus said it would begin as a mustard seed and then it would eventually blossom into the largest of trees. And all the earth would go into it and build its nest and its branches. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. It is his kingdom. It's the only kingdom that will still stand when the world is on fire. According to Daniel 2.44, it will break into pieces and consume all other kingdoms and it will stand forever. It's the kingdom that can't be shaken. Hebrews 12 and verse 28. And the thief believed it in part. He knew it. The disciples would go out and preach it. Not just that Jesus was the son of God, but that he had a kingdom. And in order to be saved, you had to be in that kingdom. You had to obey the gospel and become a subject in his kingdom. Jesus is a king and he has a kingdom. Yes, he's a judge, a lord, a savior, a ruler, but he is also a king. And we should bow before him as such. That's why it's disrespectful and blasphemous to assume that a man can say, well, I'm religious enough and pious enough. I'll just go out and start my own church. And why don't why doesn't everybody else just come and be a part of mine? The thief says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew he had none. But Jesus did. And he wanted to be in that kingdom. He wanted to be where Jesus was. And we need that same thing. We need to believe that Jesus is the Christ of God to turn away from our transgressions, to be immersed based on our confession and to be added to his kingdom unapologetically and invite all of the world to be ushered into that very same kingdom. Don't argue against it. Don't try to change it. Just receive it as he gave it. The psalmist says, kiss the son lest he be angry. When his wrath is only kindled a little, Psalm 2 and verse 12 That psalm is talking about all the kingdoms of the world and how they ultimately need to submit to God's kingdom. He's the most famous thief in the history of the world. When you read Luke's gospel account, you see from his own lips what he actually believed. He was in for a shock. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today. Maybe he was thinking about some distant time. Jesus says, you know what? Today. You will be with me in paradise. We need to believe everything that he did. What a shame to use this man as a reason to disobey God. Don't you see everything in his mouth? Every word he said is arguing for Jesus's worthiness to be obeyed. He's a king. He has a kingdom. He's done nothing wrong. We're deserving of death. He is the son of almighty God. He's saying, I want you to submit and obey. Be like me. Think about the covenant that you're under and what God demands of you. And you do likewise. The saddest thing in this account is that we often talk about the thief on the cross and not the thieves on the cross. You see, there was another man there. He heard the same thing. He saw the same things. He saw the same exchange and he missed out. As close as he was to Jesus, what a shame that for all likelihood, he's spending eternity separated from him. He could have capitalized. He could have done what the other thief did. But as we assemble this morning and we're close to God, as we hear his word preached and we're in the midst of his people, may his salvific power not be lost on us. May we grasp it and take hold of it. Acknowledge our guilt and our wrong if we need to publicly turn and obey his gospel. If we've done that and we've wandered, let's make it right. And if we don't stand in either of those categories, may we press toward the goal so that in the final analysis of all things, 
we might be remembered by the one that we really need to remember us. We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us. If this is your invitation, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.